Hi everyone, I'm Les. And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Anthropotamus, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics. Hi everyone, welcome to our latest episode of Anthropotamus. We're here with Dr. Janet Tarzan, uh, author of Anxious Eaters, Why We Fall for Fad Diets, uh, which was also written uh, with Dr. Kima Cargill, who is not here with us today. But uh, Janet, thank you so much for being here with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, this is actually a topic I'm I'm pretty interested in. We are actually a household that is very focused on nutrition, sometimes in a good way and sometimes in a bad way. <laughs> so the book was very interesting to me. So before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got interested in, in being a nutritional anthropologist? Sure. Well, I... Um originally got interested in um, sort of physical anthropology and I did um, a, an ethnobotany actually at UC Berkeley where I did um, a very, very early uh, self-major, uh, self-written major in medical anthropology um, where I did sort of half nutrition so I could understand the allelochemicals or the active chemicals in um, plants so that I could pursue my, my dreams of ethnobotany. Um, and also, of course, on the other side, physical anthropology, with, of course, some social involved, because you can't understand what people do with things unless you understand social systems. And um, uh, when I went, you know, it's just, you have to have the, the biocultural perspective, I think. I'm a little biased. Um, and then when I went to get my um, my doctorate at the uh, University of Pennsylvania, we didn't really have an option for doing ethnobotany there, but um, I was able to pursue the nutrition um, and continue that. So I really focused on being a physical nutritional anthropologist. And I ended up doing research on maternal and child health. I'm very interested in how, um, how our social worlds sort of channel what we eat and they channel it obviously economically, but also socially, what we learn to eat and how we learn to eat it, what we learn is good to eat, and how that affects what we eat. Um, and I'm also very interested in food sharing and how we provision each other and how food sharing affects the health of mothers-to-be and also babies. And kind of the sideline of that, if you think about it, is if you're interested in social, uh, social nutrition maybe, um, food habits, is you start asking questions, well, what does, what are, what are some of the social activities and the cultural um, narratives that, that really influence what we eat? And in a, a system like ours, where we live in this, uh, this ecology and this cultural space of enormous abundance, if one is privileged, right? <laughs> Be very blunt. Um, we are in the United States constantly told that we have to choose our food. So this idea of what are the social constraints, the social coordinates, the social context of food choice and how it affects our health is really, um, I, I would say, the underlying question that I ask about food in general. So you start off the book with discussing the American identity, how our culture influences our idea of individuality and uh, control over our own self and how this connected into our decisions to choose 
to diet. Can you discuss that a bit for our listeners? Oh, sure. Um, so this really was one of the primary interests of my co-author, Kima, um, because she's done research on the psychology of consumption. And um, we started these conversations many years ago, at, mostly at the Association for the Study of Food and Society conferences, um, where we realized that we had this real interest in, in this outcome about diets and food choice, and that we were coming at it from, from, from quite different perspectives, but that if we put it together, we could probably say something that would hopefully be interesting. Um, and so the thing about Americans is that we're sort of uniquely and intensely interested in fad diets. We, we feel this. And, and one reason is this cultural history of self-transformation. Uh, we have these rags to riches narratives. We like reality stories. And we have um, these very compelling narratives about self-made men. Um, and Americans are highly individualized, and the self is viewed as a lifelong project of improvement and perfection. And we can see evidence for, I would say, Americans' prioritization of personal growth and self-transformation in the popularity of self-help books, therapy, makeup show, uh, makeover shows. And there's just a strong connection between, for instance, the paleo diet and the desire for longevity, for optimal health, and the, and the creation, in particular, of a masculine physique. And um, if you're familiar with some of the most popular paleo influencers, you'll note that they often are younger men who've transformed their bodies from flabby to muscular, or older men who've ostensibly staved off aging through their adoption of paleo. And you know, this um, practice of self-transformation, I think, is also connected to a belief that consumerism and spending money solves problems. Now this is really something that Kima has done a lot of work on. And we see this really clearly in food removal diets, for instance. And these tend to sharply limit certain foods to avoid illness, reset the body, um, eat a, what's purported to be an ideal diet for the species or live your best life. And the diets are branded and they often involve spending money on special foods or membership in an organization, or the services of a professional uh, trainer or something, a coach. Um, and a lot of the diets require a substitution of an expensive food for a cheaper food, you know, like grass-fed organic meat instead of grains for paleo, or specialized sort of high-end products for similar but cheap products, like almond flour for wheat flour, or date sugars in, instead of white sugar. And, and so, um, this idea that you're going to spend money in order to improve yourself is something that comes up again and again when you read about these diets or when you talk to people. And I think it also ends up flowing into something that I think of as in, in economic terms and economic theory as the sunk costs of these diets, which is once you're involved in one, it's like you've got, you've, you know, you've got skin in the game <laughs> and, and you don't want to give it up. You really want to keep believing in it. So even if it's not working or it's not doing what you think it's supposed to be doing, you still feel this uh, investment. Um, and then finally, I think the other side of this transformation and American almost exceptionalism in some ways is that uh, consumption often um, helps us to define the self to others. Right, what you wear, what you eat, what kind of car you drive. They all say something about who you are and even more importantly, I think about who you want to be or how successful you want to appear to be. 
Um, and so eating a lot of these ways signals success, wealth, and health. Um, it can be a form of virtue signaling. And so these are all self-improvement uh, narratives and tropes, right? Um, but let's make it very clear, I think, that it's obvious that many of these diets and many of these behaviors are, are really only obtainable by the privileged. Mm. Was that too long an answer? No, that's great. <laughs> I feel like I should ask this question before we started. Gluten. Oh, gluten. <laughs> Which is funny because I have a cookie from the plane ride on my desk right now that says contains gluten. Um can you explain to our listeners what gluten is? Because it's so misunderstood and how it is now perceived as bad. Bad in my fingers doing the quotation marks. Things. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Those quotation marks are so important with your fingers when you're talking about <laughs> food and diet in the United States. Absolutely. Um, yeah, gluten is fascinating because um, it's actually part of the reason that we did this book, which I write in the book that um, I was reviewing a, a a book that Kimma had written um, for Rutledge and um, or Bloomsbury, I forget which one. Anyway, um, and she had written about uh, gluten being a carbohydrate, and I flagged it. I said, no, 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 it's not. And um, we already knew each other, but this kind of led to a set of um, conversations uh, about food and what we think about food. But what she had written was really typical. Most people think that gluten is a carbohydrate because we do that Venn diagram thing where we associate things together, right? We associate gluten with wheat and with flour or with even with grains. Some people just associate it with grains. And so since grains and wheat have carbohydrates in it, therefore, thinking, um, I guess, deductively, Gluten must be a um, must be itself a carbohydrate, but it's actually a protein, and um, the structure of the protein allows it to kind of um, stretch a bit. And so, if you are if you are making bread and the yeast is producing gas, which allows for those lovely little pockets in bread and for bread to be kind of springy, um, it is the gluten in the bread that allows you to allows the bread to expand in that way and be springy. Um, so bread flour is generally high gluten flour. And if you think of something like cultures in, in which they eat more typically eat flat breads, that can be made from from flours that don't have a lot of gluten in them. So you can make a, a flat bread from say oat, for instance, right? Oat cakes in, in Scotland are a form of flat bread. So um, they don't have gluten and they don't expand. You don't use yeast. Um, it's, it's sort of like a knobbly pita. <laughs> um, so gluten is, um, I, and I, I, I don't really know, and I'm not going to go into the details of celiac disease, but for people who have uh, true demonstrative celiac disease, the gluten causes uh, GI tract inflammation and um, literally like almost a process of creating um, lesions inside the GI tract and it causes a lot of gastric distress um, and it can make people quite ill because not only are you in pain but you can't absorb other foods because your GI tract is um, is, is inflamed and it's um, it's not as able to absorb the nutrients that your body needs so it's a very serious disease and, and it's not something that most people have um, I think it's 0.5%. I mean, it, or, you know, 
In other words, 99.5% of people on earth don't have uh, gluten sensitivities. Maybe in the United States, because <clears throat> a lot of our population, not all, but a lot, come from uh, Northern European regions or regions where the edges of wheat growing areas, um, where these populations might typically have a little more um, inability to deal with gluten. So we may have you know, a couple percentage points of people in the United States who have some kind of gluten sensitivity without having celiac. And then maybe about 1% or less of people that have actual celiac disease. And for those people, they do need to avoid gluten. But let's make this clear. We're talking about, you know, 2%, maybe 3% max. And it's also on a spectrum, right? So if you have celiac disease, you're going to get sick. You're going to feel horrible if you have gluten, sometimes quite small amounts. Whereas some people might have a bit of a gluten sensitivity. And that's still within that small percentage point. And I forget which fad diet person, writer, decided that if some people had celiac and some people reacted to gluten, then probably gluten is bad for everyone. And that's how this came about. Again, a really song, a long answer, I'm sorry, but no, this good. idea that if something is bad for some people, it must be kind of bad for everybody. Well, that's like saying, well, some people are allergic to peanuts, so we should all stop eating peanuts. <laughs> exactly. And what, what is also annoying about peanut allergies is that it's on a spectrum again, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's not, it's not a dichotomizing thing where if you look at a peanut, you die. Some people are very, very, made very ill by peanuts, but there might be people who, you know, have a very small response to peanuts, but it's still okay. This section in particular stood out to me, especially because you were just talking about that, uh, the percentage of people who actually have these uh, allergies to, to gluten. And it's just because, uh, like, I am in a statistics class at the moment, and that is literally the, the far end of the, the outliers, right? That, that's, that's the end of the bell curve. Uh, these guys are unicorns. Like, so <laughs> you're going to go around and, and meet, like, one or two people you, you know, in your lifetime, you may be actually. I have two people in my department who are actually allergic to everything. So, <laughs> <laughs> that, well, unicorns, right? There you, um, go. you may meet one or two people who are actually allergic to it, but you're going to go out there and, and yeah. meet like you know, 50 or 60 people. I, I gr growing up, I had um, a friend of mine whose younger brother was on a, I think, some, some one of the fad diets, it may have been the Kato or the paleo or something like that just because they thought he had an allergy and it was causing him to act up and i'm like uh, well that's okay. not how that works uh, that's that's just behavioral issues because you know uh you know who knows why the behavioral issues came into play but like um that has nothing to do with their diet you know what i see that a lot on the like the, the facebook adhd pages it was like oh my I stopped giving my kid food with red dye number nine in it, and now he doesn't have ADHD. And I'm like, uh, don't think that's how that works, but okay. Definitely, definitely not. However, on a bright side, because of all these people worried about gluten, those who are actually allergic have far more food choices at the grocery store. That is a bright side. It is a bright side. And, you know, a friend of mine was recently diagnosed with 
um, uh, celiac disease after many years of, of having GI tract problems. And, um, you know, the, the, her availability, the availability for her to find these products has, has been a game changer. Um, she's, she's also a very enthusiastic cook. So, um, so that has worked out, but yes, it's, um, it, it does have some, it, it has this odd, um, side effect that it is okay in some ways, but also something else that you pointed out, like red dye number nine, or when I was growing up, which was a very long time ago, <laughs> um, people were talking about, I think it was red dye number two and making kids hyper. So this is, and this is a story that it just keeps getting, um, Kind of reinvented and rolled over. It's I think of these these narratives that, um, and really this is a book about narratives, right? Our, our food narratives. They're kind of like um, these snowballs. They just keep picking up things and they pick up old things and they add to it and they get recycled, and that's what you find with the diets is that they're they're the recycling ideas that might have popped up, you know, sometimes 20, 30, 40, or even in the case of uh, low carb diets, Banting, William Banting from the 1860s, I think. So um, these, and, and I think what they do, they do is that they reflect these amazingly persistent uh, cultural, social, perhaps psychological tropes. So I'm going to switch gears here for a second. You talk about A plus 2B model structure. This had me thinking for a good second what I actually eat in a day and what my meals consist of. But can you explain to our listeners what the A plus 2B model structure is and how this can make sticking to fad diets difficult? Sure, sure. So um, as I think all anthropology students at some point encounter the work of Mary Douglas, um, who was famous in many different, uh, I think, areas of, of thinking through food as well as other cultural phenomena, but one of the things that she was working on earlier on in her career when she was doing, I think you could say more structural anthropology coming out of linguistic theory, uh, was she and um, I, think, I think he was at that point a graduate student of hers, Michael Nicod or Nicod, uh, did a study on what people who were mostly lower middle class and working class in England, what they thought was like a, a good meal. Like what, what's a good thing to eat? And the reason they did this was that they wanted to pursue this question of whether or not there were um, memes, not memes as we use it for our social media, but um, memes in the sense of linguistics. If there were, a, if there was a kind of grammar to social activities, just as there's a grammar to how you understand a language, so. Uh, if the sentence isn't said right, then understand it, not you do, right? <laughs> um, you know something's wrong because you, you recognize that the language is being used in a way that's not culturally familiar. So they applied this to food and they wanted to find out what was supposed to be on the plate, what was a good meal. And what they, what they realized was that almost everybody considered a proper meal to be some kind of what they called A plus 2B. So something that's stressed and then two accompaniments. You can say meat and two veg in England. <laughs> um, and that any kind of food almost, and of course there are exceptions, but if you're going to think about eating, that you're going to have some 
um, variation on this meat and two veg uh, or A and two B. So uh, the proper Sunday meal might be roast beef, of course, in England, uh, with potatoes and uh, an accompanying vegetable. Um, if you're going to have a sandwich, you're going to have meat in the center, the A, with the accompaniment, which is bread and maybe some kind of a sauce or tomato or something, so that it feels like you're actually eating something that is consistent with cultural norms about what a meal is supposed to consist of. Um, and so I think that one way to think about this is like that I'm, I'm baffled by this fascination in the United States for plant-based meat substitutes. Um, as somebody who's perfectly happy eating beans and rice as a complete protein, I don't understand why there's such this huge, cons well, I do, I guess I understand because I'm a food anthropologist, but this amazing focus on creating fake meat out of vegetable product. Um, but if you think about it in terms of the deep consonants and the deep uh, importance in our culture and English culture and many Western cultures of having this A plus 2B, you realize that that A, if it looks like a meat, it's probably going to be better accepted and you're going to feel like you actually ate a meal. Um, so did that explain that or? Yeah. So the, the beans and rice, I personally, fake meat just kind of seems distasteful to me, like a, like a, a black bean burger. I had <laughs> yeah. one of those a while back. I'm like, what is this? This is, I'd rather just have the beans. <laughs> exactly. You know, a nice black bean salad or, um, yeah. So, you know, what, what's the cultural imperative to have something that looks like a chunk of meat on your plate? Um, there's something deep seated about that, I would argue. Um, and it doesn't mean that, you know, we should all be carnivores and nor does it mean on the other side that we should all be vegetarians. Um, the, the real question to ask is, gosh, why, why, why do we even think that's important? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it does seem to have been ingrained in, um, in, I mean, if not every culture, then almost every culture, um, yeah protein or meat has just been a, a really good uh, source of food, I guess. So maybe that was kind of it. Well, and, and to, just to kind of contextualize this, for the A plus 2B is for uh, a particular Western kind of diet. And in the book, I, I discuss other um, forms. And of course, many, many anthropologists have looked at this issue. You know, what's the structure of, uh, say, a Chinese meal? What's the structure of a Thai meal? What's, what's the proper structure of, of other meals around the world? And they do differ quite a bit. But there's almost always a staple that's an A. Like the staple rice is, is the A. It's the center part for mm -hmm. many meals in Asia. And, um, and then you have the accompaniments, which are, you know, they can be meat, but they can also be vegetables or some kind of fun side mix, mix uh, so the rice plus a topping. And um, so, you know, it's, um, ha and when we grow up and we learn these patterns, you know, we eat with our eyes first. And so when we look at our plate and we see that it's not in accordance with what we think our cultural a diet should be, even if we're not thinking about it that way, it just might be a little odd and it might be harder to, um, to feel like you're, you're, you're dining, that you're really eating. That is actually a, uh, I'm sorry, I just, I hyper-focused on a particular statement. We eat with our eyes first. That, that's a wonderful statement. It's very visceral. I love it. 
Oh, I'm certainly not the first person to have said that. No, no, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure I've heard it uh, somewhere, but it just, it definitely, uh, it definitely sticks if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you know, psychologically, we might just feel like we haven't really eaten. Now, obviously, if people are being uh, are exposed to a great many other dietary um, regimes, I guess you would say, or, or habits of eating, then you know they're going to learn more ways of thinking about a proper meal. So it's not deterministic necessarily a deterministic thing, but it's you know the same way we have structures of how we understand sentences. It's there as a way that we organize the world. And so it's, it is hard. So if you are on a diet that is a food removal diet, which is to say a diet that asks you to remove one of the core components of food, not just to eat less, it would be a food reduction diet. Um, but if you're being asked to remove a core component and it's part of your culture's a and to B, it's going to be really, really hard for you to do that on a, on a consistent long-term basis. You might be able to do it for a short period of time as in, oh, let's go out and eat Thai food on Friday night and let's have a different kind of meal. But then on Saturday, you're back to, you know, the meat and two veg maybe because that's what you just are in the habit of eating. That's actually very interesting. And it seems like in a, from a nutritional standpoint or from a, a dietary standpoint, it might help uh, people, a lot of people understand how to create a sustainable diet for themselves. Yes, yes. I mean, what, what are your expectations of what your food should look like? You know, um, how do you manage um, sociality? I can use that word because we're academics, but how do you manage your social <laughs> life? You know, if, um, if you're eating with other people, um, one of the things obviously I explore in the book is that um, it's really hard to maintain a fad diet if you're a social person and um, I'm a little biased here I'm pretty convinced most of the time that we eat as social beings um, and or at least maybe that's our most salient important psychological social meals are those which we eat with others so to um, eat differently than other people is hard for longer than a very short period of time. It almost feels like if you don't get to eat with other people in a social gathering, you're not properly socializing and being a part of the group. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, just look at the vegetarians. Say you got a pizza party and you have a vegetarian oh. there. I mean, you're gonna grab a cheese pizza. I mean, some people like cheese pizzas, but it's, less common and you're more likely to be left out well as someone who doesn't eat pork i often feel left out <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, as, and um i was vegetarian for seven years when i was younger and it's like you go to gatherings and all you're eating is like the rice yeah or the cake i don't know <laughs> so you have a whole section in the book about the paleo diets which are still very popular um and you mentioned about the backlash that has come along with it. So in comparison to other diets, such as the Atkin diets, can you explain why paleo diets, why paleo diets receive so much more backlash than the others? Hmm. Now that's a really interesting question because um, I've been asked a lot of questions about these diets and um, I guess it has, and I would just have to say kind of by the, kind of off the top of my head is, 
in part because we actually have the studies, the science, the anthropology, the paleontology that can uh, say, wait a minute, no, that's not quite right. Um, so, you know, there's, there's one aspect of it where it kind of came out of academic studies, of course, the paleo prescription um, and some of that earlier work um, in the 80s when we were looking at optimal diets um, in, in biocultural anthropology. Um, but um, and so that that it's been pulled out of that, but it's also been pulled out of a lot of pseudoscience like um, the um, early work of the, um, I'm spacing on his name, uh, but he was a dentist who did work um, in the 30s, and, and other folks that did work with Arctic populations, um, where they ended up telling just so stories and then universalizing it to the human condition and ideal human diets. And then uh, as the idea of the paleo diet became so popular in the aughts, really was when it took off the late 90s and really the early um, <clears throat> aughts, uh, enough scientists came forward and said, no, actually, we're, you know, we don't exactly know what people were eating back then. And besides, there's this huge uh, range of ecological niches that, uh, that homo sapiens and proto-homo sapiens hominids lived in. And so there's no one Paleolithic diet. There's a lot of Paleolithic diets. So saying anything about them is kind of difficult because ultimately we're omnivores. Um, and that's why we've persisted and taken over all of these environments is we can eat an awful lot of things. So um, I think that's part of it. And then I think the other side of it is that paleo adherents and the people who have popularized these diets have made really some outlandish claims. Um, about how this is an ideal diet for human beings and that it will cure diseases that it won't cure. And in the book, I tell a narrative of um, a contractor who was working on our house <clears throat> who came to me and he said, well, you know, I heard about this diet. I read about it online and it sounds really perfect. It's like what we're supposed to eat. And I, but the most important thing about it is that it cures cancer. And, and he oh, said, and he said to me, you know, I, I, don't, I don't remember the name of it, but it starts with a P. And so I said, ah, do you mean paleo? And he said, yeah, that's it, that's it, it cures cancer. And I said, well, actually, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and he said, well, but I read about it online and it, it's gonna cure cancer. Now this fellow had a genuine fear of cancer. He had, had people in his family with cancer, he had a partner at that point with cancer. And so this was really, striking close to his heart and to uh, what he was worried about, his fears. And so um, this was something that resonated very strongly with him. Um, and, and I remember saying to him, well, um, if it cured cancer and if it was that easy to do, don't you think that there wouldn't be any cancer? And, and then I, I, you know, we talked about it. He said, but, but it, you know, the websites, I mean, they're really clear. They make it, they make it, it's, it makes so much sense, you know, it's like this ideal diet. And I said, well, yeah, but were they asking you to buy something? <laughs> you know, yeah. did, you, did you need to buy something to do this diet? Were they selling you something? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, they were. And I said, so, yeah, that's kind of your tip off that maybe um, the, the claims aren't quite as strong. Um, and I said, you know, if, if it really did cure cancer, then don't you think that you would go into a hospital and you'd be put on the paleo diet, you know, if you had cancer? And um, 
So yeah, we had a number of talks. I don't know that I ever actually convinced him because the promises that he read were so powerful and they resonated so strongly with what his fears were. Yeah, and that's that psychological aspect, isn't it? It's uh, playing, you know, when you play on people's fears, you're, you're kind of bypassing that logic brain. Absolutely, <clears throat> excuse me, absolutely. And again, so for a clinician, as part of this pushback is, you know, when clinicians have to deal with um, people who are coming to them saying, well, I'm not going to do my cancer therapy because instead I'm just going to eat grass-fed meat or, um, <laughs> you know, I'm going to avoid grain or I'm going to avoid dairy or I'm going to avoid ni nightshades, whatever, whatever the... the Oh my gosh! Exactly. <laughs> What's a nightshade? The nightshade family is things like potatoes and eggs oh. and tomatoes. And I think it was I think it was one of the one of the one of the fad doctor fad diet doctor types. It might have been Gundry, who I forget which one. I read so many of those that um, alleged that nightshades were poisonous. And and if you think about it from a cultural standpoint. It's the nightshade family. There are things in it that, like, if you eat a raw potato, it's not good for you, and you'll have some stomach distress, right? Um, but, but we think of them as poison, but we have all these cultural ways of dealing with them where we take the poison out and we make them safe. But then it also contains all these foods that are not in the least bit poisonous, like eggplant and tomatoes. So, um, But it, I think that that's one of those things where it gets culturally sticky because it's linguistically sticky and it makes a lot of sense linguistically even if it doesn't make any sense biologically I, I just remember reading in several places that um the belladonna nightshade plant that's supposed to be very very poisonous belladonna is really poisonous right now it, is it in the same genus as the other plants that we eat i don't know because I, I i'm not sure i'm ask a botanist so you just gave an example of this interaction with this man you give a lot of great examples, like the parents arguing over goldfish. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, just let the kid eat the freaking goldfish. But can you tell us one of the oddest interactions you've ever come upon when asked about your opinion about certain diets? Wow. Um, <laughs> can I say they're all odd? <laughs> <laughs> so, again, I think this goes back to the the what the cultural uh, milieu that all of this is happening in. And, and one of the things that we wanted to do in this book was say, you know, it's we're, we're interested not in the content of the diets necessarily, but the context of the diets, the cultural context and as anthropologists, of course, that makes sense to you, I hope. Um, but what I find is that when people will come to me, they want validation for whatever their diet is. And so they'll start telling me about what they're doing. And I've learned to school my face very, try to keep it as like <laughs> poker face as much as possible because um, sometimes it's a little disturbing to hear, you know, that um, somebody wants to, for instance, go completely vegan because they've had cancer and they want to purify their body um, and I'm like, wait a minute, you need protein, you know, you need to have more protein and are you, you know, can you mix your proteins properly or, um, and veganism, by the way, is not a fad diet. Um, and, right. and you can be a perfectly healthy vegan if you're not pregnant or growing or a child, or, um, or lactating for that matter. <laughs> um, 
pardon the nutrition talk, but I think, you know, it's that people, they want the validation of whatever they're doing because I think that there's that little tiny voice in the back of your head if you're adopting one of these fad diets that might be like the contractor said to me, okay, so what is this? Is this really real? I want some validation. But then I think because of the sunk costs, what I notice is that they get what I think of as the light of madness in their eyes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that's my tip off to be very, very careful about what I say because um, they're looking for validation. And, and um, uh, I have learned to say things like, well, um, is it, you know, do you feel better? Is it achieving your goals? How long have you been on this diet? Are you able to eat with your family and friends? Um, but I think some of the weirdest interactions I've had with are, are, are actually we ha where we, we have to be very empathetic, compassionate, um, is that I realize that they, they represent these amazing fears that people have about um, their food and about what they're taking into their body. Um, and so you'll get questions about what's in the food. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a clean eater because um, I, I want to avoid cancer. And I'm thinking, oh dear. <laughs> and, you know, so I'm only eating this, 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 and this. And does this food have any chemicals in it? It's like, well, um, of course it has chemicals in it. Chemicals are the basis of life. <laughs> so what kind of chemicals are you talking about? You know, well, was anything put on it? Um, what do you mean? You know, and so I have these interactions that are, are really about very deep-seated psychological fears. I'm not a psycho psychologist. I'm an anthropologist. And um, that was kind of a tip-off for the importance of exploring these ideas in this book as well because um, it is just so... Food is such an intimate act, as we know in anthropology. That and sex are the two most intimate acts that we, um, that we do as human beings, um, basically, besides giving birth. And, and because of that, in most cultures, there's more rules around food, what you eat, and who you eat with, and how you eat it, and sex, <laughs> um, than almost anything else. And so there's a lot of room. It's very uh, freighted, right? There's a lot of room for um, fear and for concern, especially when you're living in an environment that is full of more food and more types of food than our species has ever encountered, and where the prevailing cultural uh, discourse says you have to, quote unquote, choose wisely, right? This neoliberal idea that you're choosing your food and you have to choose it the right way. So I don't think that's quite what you answered. That's more of a, a meta-analysis. <laughs> um, but um, I think that the, the fear that people have and, and that we really have to pay attention to that and, and meet it with great compassion. People are doing these diets because they think that it's going to assuage some of their worries about themselves in the world. You do have an example in the book of, I think you were at a pet store and the guy was discussing his girlfriend being on a diet or his wife, I don't remember. Um, but he seemed very receptive to, to what you had to say and I almost felt like he was glad you told him that information, like he didn't really want to be eating what his girlfriend was yeah. eating. He didn't. He was such a good guy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> he was such a good guy. Um, and, you know... Especially when I said, well, what's, you know, what's been the outcome? And he said, well, you know, she goes on them and off them. 
And I said, well, does she lose weight? And he said, oh, no, she keeps gaining weight. And he said, but I would never tell her that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, you are such a good guy. And he was so, he was, he was like, yeah, you know, I really like, I'd like to be able to have pizza or pasta with her. And, but she keeps going on these diets where she can't eat these foods. And, and so it kind of points out the importance of our, of our social lives and, and how critical it is that we are able to eat uh, most of the time what other people are eating. Um, sharing food is, I think, love joy. And quite a lot of us in anthropology and biocultural anthropology would argue that it's one of the critical things that allowed us to evolve and, and made us human. Um, fire helped as well, you know, but, but it's sharing our food. We're the only species that provisions our young past weaning. And so that means that it's deeply baked into who we are as a species. So not being able to share food um, breaks some rules that are probably pretty hardwired. So for those who are trying to lose weight or live a, a healthy lifestyle, what are, what are resources that you would re recommend to help put them on the right path? Um, this is a good question because I think that there is so much bad information out there. I mean, I'm, uh, I am asked constantly, as I said, to validate things or I'm told about things that people have read. Um, well, first, you know, the wellness industrial complex is something to be uh, wary of. Um, this kind of gets back to a lot of Kim's ideas about consumption, but, you know, we don't talk about diets anymore. We talk about wellness. And um, it always seems to be a sort of uniquely privileged upper middle class thing to pursue your wellness. But... Um, uh, it, it does stand in for dieting sometimes. And so there's lots of things we're, cons we're, we're suggested that we do um, that might not be necessarily about weight reduction, but it's more about health enhancement. Um, but it's weight reduction hiding behind health enhancement, if that makes sense. Um, Goop comes to mind and almost everything Gwyneth Paltrow does. Um, so, oh God, I'm going to go on a rant on that in a minute now that you brought that up. Yeah, because you probably read the conclusion. I had to, I had to edit that a bit because it got a little strong. So, <laughs> one yeah. of the peer reviewers was like, um, that might not be too nice. But um, so, so I think that if people are trying to, um, first, trying to reduce their weight or trying to, for whatever reason, um, it's learning some healthy habits. The first thing to do is, is really um, is not to go on one of these fab diets, <laughs> but instead to reduce the amount of food that you eat, right? And one of the easiest ways to do that is just keep on doing your normal diet. And I, I would say take a, a third of the high calorie stuff off the plate, just a third, not more, just a third. So, um, you know, uh, vegetables and whole fruits are free. Uh, as long as they're not covered in cream sauce, <laughs> I'm speaking as a nutritionist. But um, just you know, if you're if you're in the habit of eating four ounces of pasta, eat three ounces of pasta. Measure it out, right? But don't don't put yourself in a position where you're you're leaving the table hungry, um, because that's not going to help you in the long run at all. Um, mm -hmm. And it's very hard for us. This was part of the genesis of the book as well. As Kim kept saying, why can't people just eat less? And I don't think I've answered that question. I don't think she's answered that question. But I think that the, the narratives of fad diets are so strong that it, it's hard for us to imagine that. I'll give you an example. Just yesterday, um, I had two friends 
come to lunch at my house. And I made, um, I made a lunch largely from our garden. And my friend was really enjoying it. And she was saying how she really needed to lose 11 pounds. And I said, well, no, you don't really. You're perfectly fine. And she's an incredibly active, um, physically fit. Um, she's, she's in her mid-80s, actually. But she's, um, she's got more energy than most people I know. And um, she said, well, you know, I've, I've gone to, I now weigh 130. And I used to weigh 119. <laughs> And um, I said, and she's like, and I'm, I'm, they live in assisted living. She's like, you know, the meals, I just, I'm, I'm with friends. And so I keep eating and we're talking. And, and I, I said, well, so what, what diet should I go on? And I said, well, none. Just cut a third off the high calorie stuff on your dinner plate. It's going to take a while, but you won't notice as time goes by that you're losing a little bit of weight. And, and she looked at me and she kind of gave me this dubious look like, huh? And so I think part of it is that doing something like that is so simple that we feel like it can't work. You know, we got to do something really hard, like the whole 30 where we give up practically everything all for 30 days. And then we really feel like we're getting something done. And I think it's kind of an outcome of our medical system and heroic medicine, you know, Benjamin Rush and this idea that if you have a bad disease, then you're going to have to have an equally bad um, uh, regime of, of health care to make it go away. Um, so, I, I, so the first thing is just if you, if you genuinely need to lose a, a small amount of weight, um, anywhere between, you know, up to, I would say 35 or 40 pounds, not more than that, then, you know, just reduce your meals each day. More than that, really work with a doctor. Um, but if you're looking for just a basic diet, um, you know, I love that more and more people are quote-unquote plant-forward. It doesn't mean being strict vegetarian. It means being plant-forward. And in the United States, we eat way more meat than we need to eat. Um, and so thing, a diets like the DASH diet and, 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 and the true Mediterranean diet um, are, are really a nice way of, of ensuring that you're having a wide variety of nutrients and tasty, yummy food and that you can eat with other people. And it just means shifting some of the portion sizes and frequencies of some of the foods that you eat. Um, I also like the volumetrics diet that was uh, originated by Barbara Rolls at Penn State. Um, and she's a nutritionist now emeritus. Um, and again, it just shifts some of the proportions of what you eat so that you're eating things that are higher in fiber and filling mm -hmm. you up. I actually... Um... I'm, I'm always very concerned that I'm not eating enough fruits and vegetables. I'm actually not a big meat eater. I eat meat like once a day. Um, I actually went, I did blue zone diet, every, blue zone diet, which is a vegan diet every other day to force myself to eat more fruits and vegetables. But I actually noticed on those days I would actually get kind of like, I would actually not feel very well. I'd almost feel like jittery, like I was missing it was weird. So I actually <laughs> went and got like B12 supplements. I was like, maybe it's a B12 because according to like my fitness pal, I was getting all the nutrients I needed. But uh, yeah, but it, I mean, it was nice eating a larger variety of fruits and vegetables that I typically wouldn't eat. But isn't it interesting that you felt that you had to go buy something? Oh, no, I didn't buy anything. I, well, yeah, I bought the fruits and vegetables, but well, I you didn't. bought the B12. 
Yes, I, I bought the B12. That's yeah. right. I got I bought the B12. You bought the B12. So and again that kind of goes back to that trope in America of, you know, we're going to consume something to achieve these goals. Um, and we feel like it's really real if we buy something because we're a consumer society. So, um, but you know, this idea of going on a diet that is intermittent like that, um, not intermittent fasting, that's not something that's uh, based on uh, paleolithic evidence or anything else. But um, if you're going to be shifting your diet in some way, um, that can be really valuable. And I'm thinking of, um, Oh, I'm just spacing on his name right now, but he wrote for the New York Times for a long time. Mark Bittman. Mark Bittman needed to lose some weight, so he decided that he was going to go vegan most of the day to increase the amount of fiber in his diet, right, and whole, and whole fruits and vegetables. And, um, and then for dinner, he would have whatever. And that was so that he could maintain his social life without having to explain that he was doing anything different than anyone else. And, you know, he, he got the increased fiber and, and changed his diet a little bit and lost the weight that he was targeting to lose and did it in a way that was really sensible um, and that, uh, you know, certainly didn't hurt his health because some of these diets, if you follow them, I think can hurt, uh, hurt the health of some people. Um, but it also, I think, it showed us that that all or nothing thinking is not a good way to approach a diet. Um, in nutrition, we say it's always portion size and frequency. <laughs> and so if you're trying to change what you're eating, um, think of it as a process, not as a thing. Think of it as something that you're, you're making small changes in, in your life. Um, and uh, you know some of the most important changes that you can make is increasing the fiber that you eat, uh, both uh, soluble and non-soluble fiber drinking more water and making sure that you're having water instead of, say, soda pop. Um, uh, you know, simple things like walking more. You don't have to go to CrossFit. You can walk more, right? Um, so all of those little things that can really alter your health profile over time, I think because we're encouraged to think that things need to be really hard for, for them to be effective, we think those things might not be effective, but we know in research that those are effective and they're effective for a long time because there are smaller changes that you can make that you can then keep. It's kind of like the uh, when when we first started getting the mouthwashes that didn't burn <laughs> come out. We had those commercials, if it burns, it's working. Oh, yes, uh, yes, yeah, what yeah. a good example. <laughs> Exactly. We have to feel the pain. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's not an effective <laughs> regime. Um, and, you know, there was a wonderful article in Anthropology News just recently about um, an anthropologist doing CrossFit and studying CrossFit and doing CrossFit herself. And it was just fascinating because it is entirely premised on the fact that it's effective because it makes you feel miserable. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, it's funny you you mentioned for a quick second intermittent fasting. I have a friend who does it, and she goes, "You want to do it with me?" And I'm like, "Girl, I already fast a month. I already fast for a month during Ramadan. I do not need to fast anymore during the year. Like, I'll pass. Thanks." 
Exactly. And, you know, the, I've, I've read some of the arguments for uh, intermittent fasting based on our uh, alleged hominid ancestors and this presumption that, like, we, we didn't eat very often because we couldn't find food is a little odd. Because <laughs> if you <laughs> have read any of the studies of hunter-gatherers, you know that um, they are accomplished at finding food in their environments. And so they, they do eat. Um, they do eat frequently, so it's not it's it's a spurious argument. You know, should we should we not be putting food into our mouths every minute of the day? Um, yeah, absolutely, we shouldn't be doing that. That's because then we get a lot of extra calories, and um, we might not be healthy. <laughs> well, I feel like if you're a hunter gatherer, if there's no food around, then you're going to be moving and going to where the food is. Exactly. Exactly. You know, you, you know your environment, you're skilled at your environment. And um, so it's this presumption that we were somehow stupid cavemen who starved all the time. It's just, um, <laughs> or, you know, or had to run down the wildebeest and, and so only ate th every three days because we were busy hunting large chunks of meat. Um, goes against everything we know in paleoanthropology about what, what um, our ancestors were actually doing and eating. And how they were moving through the uh, the landscape. So, um, but you know, should we be snacking 14 times a day? No, absolutely not. You know, unless you have a medical condition that requires very small packets of food, many, you know, more frequently. Um, you know, the average healthy adult doesn't need to have eight meals a day. <laughs> I'm guilty of snacking all the time. I'll just be honest. I. Uh... I, I don't have big meals a lot of the time. Um, like I usually have one big meal a day before I go to you know before I go to sleep. Uh, but otherwise, it's just small, um, quick things throughout the day that just keeps you know to keep me going. So I I, I tend to eat in small bursts rather than uh, you know having a good meal that's well rounded, which you know honestly is probably not good for me because I end up with uh, snacks and, and junk food. I feel like that has to do with your work schedule, though. Well, uh, yeah, there's probably that, yeah. Are you allowed lunch breaks now? <laughs> uh, I Honestly, right now I'm covering somebody else. So I actually have to go in today. It's my sixth day. It's been oh, the past four weeks that I've been, done this. Okay. Usually be able to squeeze out um, a 30-minute meal here, you know, like during the day at some point, but a lot of times it's not until later. So, well, and, and, you know, if it's working for you, that's fine. I mean, and, and you mentioned the fact that when you snack, um, that, that maybe some of the other elements, healthier elements like vegetables tend to drop out. And, and the research shows that my own research shows that, that snack foods tend to, um, you know, they're, they're easier. So that's, that's the primary problem. But on the other hand, mm -hmm. if your individual biology is such that you work just perfectly fine on, you know, six small snack episodes during the day and a big meal at night and you're healthy and you have energy and you feel good, that's fine. That's fine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think yeah. I've seen Les eat vegetables before. <laughs> I, <laughs> that's not fair. I, I eat vegetables on occasion. Um, 
You didn't rarely. want to tell me that. I, I'm, I'm like, I'm a nutritionist, and all I do is try to get people to eat vegetables. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I man. think I cooked I, dinner know, once, and I get put like salad on his plate, and he's like, I don't eat that stuff. <laughs> ah, rabbit food. Uh, what, what, what is this? What is this green thing in front of me? Um, I, you know, uh, I do do squash count as a vegetable? I feel yeah, like that counts as does. a vegetable. Squash I, is a wonderful vegetable. It's very I, good for you. I eat squash and and uh, was it ste- I, I like steamed vegetables a, a lot of the time when I'm having it. So squash, carrots, um, broccoli, that kind of stuff. That if I'm having a, a you know a meal somewhere where I've uh, usually ordered it because I've I've almost never steamed my own vegetables, uh, then that'll be my side rather than something like um, mashed potatoes or something like that. So I think I uh, you know. Not enough, but some vegetables <laughs> at least. <laughs> well, and, and you know, again, I can hear your, uh, what, I'm, what I'm hearing in you is your hesitation and you're, you know, you're questioning yourself. And this is what I hear from people all the time. And it kind of, I think it kind of, it, it, it illustrates this point that there's this, this, this tension and this nervousness about our diet. And I think partly it's because we just have so many things to choose from. And we've got so much information coming at us of what you should do, right? What should I eat? People always ask me that. What should I eat? And I usually answer, well, what do you like eating? And they look at me and they're like, but, but, but you're a nutritionist. I'm like, yeah, so what do you like eating? And, but, 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 because like somehow this idea that what you like eating maybe is what you should be eating is a problem and that I'm, I'm not giving them good advice. Well, I just want to know where they're coming from. What do they like eating? Because if you like, if you don't like salad and Somebody keeps telling you you got to eat salad, and you're like, I don't like salad. You're going to feel bad about your diet, but you just told me you eat squash and carrots. Well, they're really good for you, so mm-hmm. good job. Don't worry about <laughs> the salad. I, I gave up on salad years and years ago, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's again, there's that tension of, of expectations, and, and this is, again, what fad diets, I think, really fill into, fall, fall into this idea that, you know, there's a cultural script of what we're supposed to do and and this becomes a script of what we're supposed to do to to maintain the perfect body or the perfect wellness or the you know the perfect uh aspirational lifestyle Mm -hmm. and um if we don't do it we feel like we're failing somehow and that's when you you get into problems with people who are have uh disordered eating and even eating disorders um orthorexia, the fear of um, eating improperly. And, and I think that all of these narratives are really, really um, frightening and, and end up making us fear our food in a way that's, that's really um, problematic, yeah. which is why I think it's important for all of us to ask ourselves, like, what do we like to eat? Let's make this fun, let's make it pleasurable, and let's make it as healthy as possible. Yeah, and then obviously, you know, the um, the diet is only part of the equation. I mean, I, I generally walk about ten miles a day. You know, I I I, th- I maintain a, a healthy weight. I'm under, you know, what I need to be at. I I should probably, I'm supposed to have more fats in my diet for, according to my doctor. So, um, at the same time, you know, you you do have to have. Uh, that balance right you, you can't just rely on food to, to m- remove everything but you know it's like that uh, that again is um people don't want the easy route they want it to be easy they just don't want to take the easy route 
Yeah, there's this weird tension between um, the magic pill, the magic bullet. We were originally going to call this book the magic bullet, um, why we love fad diets, but um, and where we want something that's really easy, like you know all of the stuff that comes up on your screen on your computer is like avoid this one food for life, and doctors mm -hmm. say you'll be healthy. Um, mm -hmm. You know, avoid bananas. Um, the last one I just saw was hilarious. It was like, do you know the surprising connection between eggs and type 2 diabetes? And I'm like, I'm a nutritionist, and no, I don't. No, I'm not going to click on it. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, we, we get, just get so much coming at us that we feel uncertain all the time. And so we don't always have the opportunity, I think, to, to really explore and develop good habits. Um, and, and then we feel guilty about what we're doing. People are always telling me how guilty they feel about eating. And I know one of the things that I often have to do with people if I'm kind of working with them as a nutritionist is get them to agree that it's okay to eat the chocolate cake. Like once in a while, enjoy that chocolate cake and really, really eat it and, and say, this is good. And I'm not going to argue you should have it three meals a day. But you know, if you're at a birthday party and they're serving chocolate cake, just enjoy that chocolate cake. Well, yeah, they, they treat food like it's like it's actually an addiction. Like if they have one slice, they're going to fall off the wagon and have all the cake. Exactly. So much of our food is dichotomized, or how we think about our world is dichotomized. It's good versus bad, and I, you know, I have to work with that with a lot of times with people. It's like, well, why is the food bad? I don't understand. You know, it's 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 all about portion size and frequency. I'm not going to lie, I'm going to be that person that would eat the whole chocolate cake. I do eat dessert every night. I can't give up dessert. Every night there has to be dessert after dinner. But at the same time, I'm like, it takes me a lot of willpower not to eat the whole cake. Oh, I'm that way with salsa. Salsa's I, good I, for you, though. Yeah, well, there's a lot of salt in it. <laughs> oh, well, I guess that depends on the salsa you're eating. I don't put a lot That's of salt true. in it. Well, no, you're... I mean, they're, they're, I guess, but, but, but see you're what like you're doing eating right with now? chips too. Oh, saying it's healthy and yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you're, you're right now you're, in, you're engaged in this narrative of telling yourself you're doing something wrong when mm. you're simply enjoying your food. So, you know, enjoy your food. And, and, and I don't think if you think it's wrong or bad or something, then you are going to, um, approach it as if it's an all or nothing. So you are going to say, well, the cake's bad, so I'm going to have a little bit of, oh, well, well, I'm bad, so I'm just going to have the whole thing, and I'm still bad. <laughs> right? Or as if you say, well, I really love the chocolate cake, and I'm going to have a piece, and I'm really going to enjoy this piece, and I'm going to be, it's, it's good cake, and I'm a good person, and I can enjoy this good piece of cake. Um, it's then the you, whole in for a penny, in for a pound scenario. Right? Yeah. <laughs> And so, and, and you know, you can acknowledge to yourself, well, I, you know, I, I, I can have cake again later. Um, one of the things that I think helps people think through food is rather than dichotomizing it, which, you know, in the book I, I go into dichotomizing things a lot, but it's, um, and this really works if you're trying to teach children about um, what, what mom and dad want them to eat, which is, is it an everyday food? Is it a once in a while food or is it a special occasion food? And toddlers really understand this. And if you, if when I just said that, you actually probably had in your brain what your everyday foods were, what, what your once in a while foods were, and what your special 
foods were? You know, I actually never started eating dessert until I was in the military. And in the military, they always have the case of cake. So you would always have like a piece of cake after dinner. And, you know, you do that for so many years. But when I got out of the military, I was like, oh, time for dessert. There you go. You made a new habit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, it's not necessarily, don't think of it as a bad one. Because <laughs> if it's, no, seriously, if it fits in with your, if your overall diet, if you are healthy, if, and you are able to do everything that you want to do in your life and, and you feel good, then enjoy the dessert. I actually do eat fairly, I am a little obsessive about what I eat, which is why I'm so, which part of the reason why I was interested in the book is because I am obsessive about what I eat and worry about not getting the right nutrients. Like I have a hard time getting enough protein in the day because I, I'm not a big meat eater. Um, And, you know, that whole thing of protein, we worry so much about protein in the United States, and there's very there's there, there's some real history behind that. Um, and certainly it's true that uh, protein was a, a, a uh, macronutrient that was uh, not enough in our environment. And, and for people who are not well off, protein is a, a very big problem in most parts of the world. But the sources of protein in our in our um, Northern European, excuse me, Northern American um, existence are profound. I mean, it's not just meat, it's cheese, it's dairy, mm -hmm. it's beans and rice, it's, um, you know, brown rice, it's uh, all kinds of things that we can eat that are going to provide us the protein that we need. We don't necessarily need, need meat. So I'm not a vegetarian, by the way, but <laughs> I am a nutritionist. And so, you know, we, we just, there's so many things out there that we can eat that are diverse, that we can yeah. meet our, our everyday dietary needs with. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm definitely not a vegetarian. I, I consider myself a, a, an omnivore at best. Uh, my brother, however, my youngest brother took up veganism uh, a number of years back and he'd been doing it on and off but once he like fully committed he did lose a lot of weight like mm. he, he's uh, he dropped off I think over the past few years um, 60 or more pounds oh god yeah he, he it was it's been it's been I think seven or six or seven years but over that time he's dropped off a lot of weight and he was a little just a little bit overweight before but you know it, it has changed things for him yeah, and you know you can be a you can be an overweight vegan if you focus on. Um, yeah, that's also you true. Know, so you know your brother. One of the things that happens when people shift to uh, lacto-ovo vegetarian diets or veganism is that they they're often eating more fiber. They're eating because you learn about the importance of whole grains and and beans, for instance, and that fills your stomach up, so you eat less. Mm -hmm. um, Fiber is in, incredibly important for us, as we all know, and most Americans just don't eat enough of it. That is, uh, yeah, I'm I'm guilty of that. No, I so. that's something I actually obsess over. Also, protein and fiber. I always worry I'm not getting enough fiber either. I actually eat a lot of fiber, but anyways, I don't even know why we're talking about that now. Fiber, Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, let's rant about Gwyneth Paltrow now. <laughs> so, 
Well, yeah, I think I think that um, you know she she provides this amazingly aspirational lifestyle that resonates so much with people. But I think some of my favorite writing about Gwyneth Paltrow is the absolutely brilliant Lindy West, who um, wrote has written a, a few articles that are in uh, she she has a book, The Witches Are Coming, but she's also written extensively over the years um, for various, as a journalist. And she's a brilliant, brilliant writer and extraordinarily funny as well. And so um, I think that I would point us all to, uh, to Lindy West. And I, one article that she wrote, it's Gwyneth glows like a radioactive swan, <laughs> my day at the Goop Festival which I'm, I'm looking at it now. She published in The Guardian in 2017, and um, it's available online. And it is just absolutely phenomenal from, uh, you know, as it, for an anthropologist to read that. And she's, she's wickedly funny and extraordinarily articulate. So she's just a great writer. Um, but yeah, there's a lot to unpack in, in Goop. Um, and I read, I read uh, Gwyneth's cookbooks, um, which were fascinating, again, from an anthropological perspective, just to see how they were styled and how her lifestyle is presented as, as an ideal and aspirational one. So um, that's resonating very deeply with people. And uh, so I think, you know, we want to ask why, but um, it's also fascinating kind of from that structural anthropology perspective of analyzing how the photographs uh, fulfill a, a, a kind of a linguistic text, really, a, a photographic linguistic text of, um, of, of, of an ideal lifestyle. So Les, if you haven't already done so, I would go to Amazon and look up Gwyneth Paltrow's cookbook. Um, you know, I don't follow celebrities. I was just looking yeah. it up. <laughs> I don't follow celebrities, so I didn't even know she had a cookbook. She has a couple. Yes, and I looked it up, and it's just, you know, the, everything in the kitchen's white. She's wearing all white, <laughs> and I, I get what they're trying to say. Clean, living, clean, eating, whatever. But to me, I feel like it's targeting a certain type of people, because if I'm buying a cookbook, that is not, when I look at the cover, that is not the cookbook I'm going to get. When I look at the cover, first thing I thought was, who the hell is cooking wearing all white? And why does she not have an apron on? And then I'm thinking, your cookbook probably has about 20 ingredients per recipe. I am not going to the grocery store to buy all those expensive ingredients. So I'm not going to bother opening the cookbook. But I'm just... Oh. I was just And like, by the way, most of it's probably organic. I will, I would bet you dollars to donuts that at least like half of the ingredients you're using are going to be organic branded. Oh, well, they have to be, yes. I mean, in the cookbook that I kind of pilloried at the end, by the way, Lindy West has a wonderful article on trying to, um, trying to cook out of one of the Goop cookbooks, one of the Paltrow cookbooks, of, of exactly how expensive it is. Um, but um, the cookbook is, 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 I'm trying to find where, it's like all of the things, nowhere in this book will you find any alcohol, caffeine, dairy, gluten, nightshades, peanuts, processed foods oh, or sugars, geez. red meat or soy. So she's cooking with ice cubes? I don't, like, what are you cooking with? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, no. What's left? No. Parsley this... and fairy farts. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
first. <laughs> um, <laughs> this recipe consists of tap water. No, wait, tap water would be outlawed. Um, filtered water, uh, probably filtered after it was organic in the spring water. Yeah, there we go. There we go. <laughs> And, and and bright dreams. Yeah, it's it's, and you know, as Lindy West points out, that it the the ingredients themselves are um, so evocative of a particular class position, right? Um, mm -hmm. Of a particular space, we can say a cultural space that's welcoming to some people and not welcoming to others, um, and only available to some people. Not only sometimes because of um, the monetary cost, but also because of the geographic difficulties of finding all of those very specialized ingredients. Um, oh yeah. You know, and you know, if you're so, uh, and and she also writes about which I think is particularly important uh, about just how much time it took to produce some of these um, these meals that were recommended, and you can go online to see. Um, you know, like how to do the January cleanse, for instance. What but, is that? Um, so, you know, what it, I think it, it, it is a kind of a way for people to focus um, on when you expend something, you expend that much time and energy and money on something, again, you, you're back into the sunk costs. So, you know, even if it maybe isn't working, you're going to convince yourself it's working because you've invested so much in it that um, you kind of have to justify your your cost basis um, and but again i think then on the other side you know you have to worry well people feel bad if they can't do that like i should be i should be doing this otherwise like i'm not i'm not going to be successful because i'm not going to be thin and then i'm not going to be able to get a good job and that's that part of that very toxic diet culture that is really quite worrisome um so so some of these narratives about how we should be engaging with our food should 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 that's that word that keeps coming up um can really be problematic and again it's just hard to do these diets sometimes because you're being asked to change your habits so much and and you can't always eat with other people I think that, that, you know, just the whole mentality of eating in general, you know, we're, we're social creatures. You're going to have a better time when eating with, with others than you will if you're eating alone. So it's, you're easily pulled away from things that should be on your plate just because that's not what everybody likes. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that even if, you know, even if you are trying to change your diet, maybe you have to medically, or maybe like my friend who's recently been diagnosed with celiac, she absolutely has to change some of the things that she eats, and it means that she has to be very uh, thoughtful about every meal that she has. Um, and that means that if I want to go out to eat with her, we're going to find a place that has options where she can, you know, be sure that she is not going to be eating any gluten. Um, but for the vast majority of people who are choosing, choosing, important word there, to go on a diet um, that is not a medically, uh, medically required diet, there's a little bit of wiggle room. So I think that you know, even if you're trying to, say, um, increase your fiber or uh, whatever it is that you think is important that you alter in your, your dietary landscape, if you're out with friends, Enjoy the pizza, please. 
please enjoy the pizza. <laughs> oh, I, I do love a good slice of pizza. I I probably can't eat as much of it as I, I shouldn't eat as much of it as I do just because, and it's not because I, because of the, the dietary aspect. I'm just, uh, cheese gets me. It, uh, it, it upsets my stomach for sure. And there's a lot of cheese on the pizza, so you yeah. know that yeah. you can yeah. you can have cheese, but maybe you can't have much of it. It's like me. I'm yeah. a lightweight. I can have one drink. I can't have two. You know? Yeah, there we go. I know there that. <laughs> I yeah. Uh, when I when I had first become vegetarian, I was like, oh, I'm gonna go vegan, and I tried it for two weeks, and I oh, and I gave up after two weeks because I'm like, I love cheese too much. And, <laughs> and then I started eating cheese again. Of course, I hadn't eaten cheese in like two weeks, and I was like in the bathroom for like three days <laughs> but I'll, right but i'm like i love cheese too much i'm not stopping now <laughs> <laughs> i can't give this cheese i'm up. not giving the cheese up <laughs> mm -hmm. you know and it's interesting you say that um is that I, I think a lot of times when i talk with people about and they change their diet they say well i feel so much better and um and this is where particularly if they're following a diet that's relatively sensible whether or not trying to um, do something that is is so distasteful or so hard that it, it's making their lives miserable but you know oftentimes I think a lot of the distress that we have diet uh, dyspepsia whatever you want to call it is, mm -hmm. is really just that we often have extremely large portion sizes in this country yes and so um, you know, people sometimes get in the habit of eating really a huge amount of food. You eat so quickly. Some people eat so quickly that their stomach does become very full. And um, that's just what they learned how to do. So unlearning that and eating more slowly, um, it, it always helps. But sometimes when you change your diet and it's like maybe you're eating more fiber and yeah, all of a sudden, you know, um, to be blunt, maybe you're not constipated anymore. <laughs> Um, you know, well, maybe you the go. diet says you're supposed to eat, you know, six glasses of water a day. So you, you, you actually make a point of uh, drinking the six glasses of water a day. And, oh, guess what? You're, you're not constipated anymore, you know, um, and you feel better. Um, so you think that that's the diet itself, the branded fad diet. But it's actually the fact that maybe you changed your, your habits in, in a positive way that um, was was better for your overall health mm -hmm. so um, in other words rather than uh, I don't know a avoiding a certain um, food for instance cheese some uh, there's there's actually there are books out there fad diets that tell you never to eat cheese which was the most horrifying thing I read because <laughs> I'm I'm with you on on the cheese that's a absolutely I love cheese but you know you still you don't want to eat eight ounces of cheese you want to eat an ounce of cheese two ounces of cheese because if you eat eight ounces of cheese, yeah, your tummy is probably going to not feel too good. Is there anything else you would like to say about the book that we haven't addressed? Um, well, what I would like to say is, you know, a lot of times people ask me, so what's the next bad diet? And um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so what I'll say and kind of, hopefully just leave this here for all of the listeners to think about which is that um, in reading through these fad diet it's very clear that they build the new fad diet builds on the old fad diet and that again if you think about it is culturally meaningful because if you've bought into the precepts of the last fad diet like atkins for instance where 
meat is good and carbohydrate is bad, then you're going to accept the ideas of a fad diet that follows closely on that, like keto or paleo, both of which kind of converge in some ways. And so what it, what it does is it creates this culture of legitimacy. Where, and I think of it kind of like a snowball rolling downhill, where the next fad diet is just another layer of that snowball. And what you see with these fad diet gurus is that they, they just adopt and adapt what's already there and they add it to their own diet. So what you find over time is more and more restriction or more and more weird specialized ingredients that you need to, um, to have a good diet. So um, then just as a takeaway, the next fad diet is always a reiteration of the last fad diet. Um, and that tells me that it's really not about the food. It's really about the cultural narratives that we are telling ourselves about food and about our food habits. See, my favorite are the commercials that start with, this is what doctors don't want you to know. <laughs> exactly. That's so, so important. I've, I've been told by people, oh, well, you know, um, I learned this, and you don't know that as a nutritionist because you, you just kind of learn like book nutrition, but but I learn holistic nutrition. Oh, and so I know, I actually had that, someone told me that one day, and I just kind of looked at him like, okay, you're mansplaining nutrition to me, and you don't know what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah. But the, um, the next fad diet, eating earthworms. Yeah. <laughs> How to eat fried worms, recontextualize. <laughs> exactly. Hey, well, cricket flour is becoming a thing, right? Oh boy. <laughs> and it's okay because it's, it's paleo because, you know, our ancestors probably ate, ate insects, right? Well, I mean, they do in like Asia still. I mean, I remember as in Thailand, people would be roasting grasshoppers. So why Dude, not? I, I, I ate one of those. I've had chocolate covered grasshoppers before. I, I've ha yeah. I even had a fried grasshopper once. That I was, had a fried grasshopper. I yeah, have, in yeah. It was crunchy. I yeah, it's good. it tastes like uh, like um, it's got that same consistency as like freeze dried fries. If you, know, it's it's good. <laughs> I tried um, not in Thailand, not when I was in Thailand, but I was at the science museum in Baltimore, and they did like stir fry crickets or something, and then they had oh. a mealworm chocolate chip cookies, and I tried it. I had to close my eyes. It was a bit nutty. Mealworm. Yeah, it was. It was a bit nutty. It was nutty. Oh. It was a little, I had to close my eyes because the little mealworms were like sticking up out of the cookie. And I was like, oh, no, that's terrible. I can't, I can't oh, my gosh. It. No. <laughs> oh, mealworm but, chocolate chip cookies. That's interesting. But, they're, but they are a good source of protein and fat. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they're, they're perfectly safe to eat. So, I mean, hey, that's a great Halloween food. What if you actually did that on Halloween? I think that'd be like that's if we can find the recipe, you know. We, we should. We're gonna have a Halloween party at my house. We're gonna serve crickets. Oh, there we go. Yep, yep. That'd be perfect. Oh my goodness! Yes, I was just thinking witchy grub uh, gummies. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, there's already Swedish fish, and aren't, aren't yeah, there yeah. like worm gummies? Yeah. Yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? Why yeah. not? You just put real worms in them. I once <laughs> brought in. Um, I brought in um, some. They were uh, from I think Mexico. They were 
pop, not yeah. popsicles, but, but candies that had some kind of a worm in them and handed them out to all the students in the food and culture class I was teaching and as, you know, as a Halloween gift. And nobody ate them, but I'm sure that you know, they brought uh, them home. This was the crazy professor who handed out. I 100% would have eaten it. I, just, like, I have no fear of bugs. Like, if it's a candy, I'm like, okay, let's do this. I'm going to be able to say that I ate a bug. You know, I've, as, you know, as someone who grew up in a, you know, Hispanic community and who often saw these candies, I have actually never tried one. Really? Mm -mm. See, I was the I was the weird kid. I would I would eat ants on a dare or something like that. So I was I don't care. Um, not that I recommend anybody do that, but uh, they were spicy. <laughs> <That's interesting. laughs> oh man! So this is the next fad diet. You see, we went. <laughs> we actually, Les, you handled that really well. You immediately took us right into into bugs because you know we know that ecologically people are are um, exploring the idea of having sustainable uh, food coming from insects so mm -hmm. um, I, I guess then we would have to ask ourselves what would be the cultural narratives that would need to be in place for us to accept um, the substitution of many of our protein sources by insect derived foodstuffs mm -hmm. Um, as a fad diet, what what would well, be the narratives? Well, I think I, I think that one's going to be a very difficult one to sell. I mean, we like humans in general have a have a, a very strong psychological block on insects. Anything that crawls, you you know, the legs and in, in uh, on spiders or anything with multiple legs is going to be a, a very triggering factor for a lot of people. I th um, I think that like should be you, a research project. I think you should I, I um, create. That's, that's a insect fad diet and based off all your research use like the marketing techniques and stuff to see if you can mm -hmm. get people to actually start promoting it what oh gosh <laughs> now i've actually started the next fad diet at that point That's no. <laughs> Uh, Go ahead and I do mean, it, it, guys. You know, you can retire early. I know, right? Hey, hey, you know, if it, if it works, it works. Then maybe I could actually spend more time on the podcast and finish the books. Right? I mean, oh, didn't they, someone create like a high-protein cockroach flower for like bread? Oh, gosh. That, I can't, I couldn't, I couldn't even think about doing that. That's, uh, that's too much. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that people are working with cockroaches so much, but I think that um, crickets. Because maybe it was crickets. Yeah, well, crickets it, and cockroaches are actually related pretty closely. They're, are, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Well, they're I, both I in my basement. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, the movie Snowpiercer. It's, uh, yeah. it's not a children's movie. The, the they train? Had, they had something like the, yeah, the, uh, yeah. the protein bars that they had were made, like of, were, were made of cockroaches. It was jelly bars made out of roaches. Yeah. That was a good thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, and so then it, of course there's always Soylent Green, which yep, there's um, Soylent Green. I've I've also had my students watch the the parts of that film where you know they reveal they, they show the factory and then finally you can go to the clip of where he says Soylent Green, it's people. Um, I haven't seen that. I'm not gonna watch that. Yeah, it's Soylent Green's a really important film. It's not a very good film, but um, <laughs> in terms of, um, I think as a cultural statement, it, it was probably one of the uh, more revealing ones. Of I think it came out in 1972, and it, it really reveals so many of the um, 
the cultural uh, fears that were occurring at that point, and I think are occurring now. But this idea, again, this enormously intimate relationship that we have with putting things in our mouths and eating them, they, they go into our bodies. And this idea that we would normalize cannibalism is, um, Ooh, yeah. yeah, very, very problematic. So mm -hmm. um, um, I don't think that's going to become a fad diet. Um, <laughs> Thank you very much for, for coming in. Oh, this was so much fun. You guys have great questions, and um, uh, I've really been enjoying listening to your podcast, so keep up the good work. Thank you so much for coming on our show again, and for our listeners, we now have our website up and running at www.anthropotamus.com. Thank you all for listening. Distribution of Anthropotamus is in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Please continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Anthropotamus for our latest episodes, show notes, and book discussion schedule.